0: We should not expect this summit to set out a new dream. The key objectives and the key challenge will be finding consensus on what has already been promised in 2017 at Gothenburg. It
1: is perhaps also high time that it's recognised in Brussels and in member states that investing
2: in care services also makes good financial sense. Social inclusiveness must become the foundational element in the EU's economic and social transformation.
3: Hello, and welcome to the EPC podcast, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Rebecca Kastermans, and I'm the head of communications at the European Policy Center. The upcoming Porto Social Summit hopes to give a much needed push to the European pillar on social rights, the EU's attempt to add a social dimension to its policies and promote basic social rights. But without any real power in this area, what concrete results can we expect from the summit? Later this week, EU leaders and heads of state are gathering in Porto for the social summit. They will discuss how the union's social dimension, meaning policies on such issues as labor rights, wages, pensions, equality, and health care, can be strengthened. With this summit, the Portuguese Presidency of the Council hopes to give a much-needed push to the implementation of the European Pillar of Social Rights and the Commission's Action Plan. Hearts and Minds seem to have warmed up to the idea of a union with a strong social dimension. COVID-19 has led to economic hardship and more inequality across Europe. A recent Eurobarometer survey found that 9 in 10 Europeans consider a social Europe important to them personally. Equal opportunities in the labor market, fair working conditions, and quality health care are their top concerns. However, ahead of the summit, 11 member countries issued a joint statement emphasizing that it's national authorities, not Brussels, who should be making decisions about social policies. Citizens are becoming more vocal in questioning the reasons to do things at the EU level. And with the European pillar of social rights giving the EU no additional competences or power, there's doubt about the Union's ability to deliver on its lofty ambitions. I talked to the EPC Social Europe and Wellbeing team to look ahead at the summit and explore the tension between dreaming of a social Europe and doing the work of building it. Program assistant Danielle Brady... Junior Policy Analyst Mihai Palimariciuk, Policy Analysts Laura Rayner and Simona Gualiardo, and newly appointed Associate Director Eileen MacLeod, explain why EU-wide social policies are worth pursuing and how they could be implemented successfully. One of the pillars' uh, main principles is that everyone should have the right to affordable, accessible, good quality health care, which now is, of course, more relevant than ever. At the start of the pandemic, in the middle of a crisis that so obviously demanded international cooperation, many thought that this could be the Union's time to shine. But very quickly, countries started hoarding medical equipment, and it seemed like it was every member state for itself. Since then, there have been calls for the EU to do more on health, but without any real power in this area, what would that entail exactly?
4: Well, uh, Rebecca, as you rightly mentioned, the immediate reaction to the pandemic across Europe was not uh, praiseworthy. Uh, Caught unprepared by the health crisis, uh, European countries responded uh, in an uncoordinated way. They imposed border controls, they issued export bans, hindering uh, the proper functioning of the single market and jeopardizing the ability of the continent to tackle the spread of the virus. So this first reaction called into question the very foundation of the European project, the solidarity among its member states. And I think it is important to bear in mind this first reaction and what it caused in order to avoid any similar missteps as we move forward uh, with building a stronger and more resilient Europe. So uh, to get to your question, what more can the EU do on health? I think uh, the priority now is to make the most of EU action within the existing uh, institutional framework. The uh, process has started, the Commission has put forward the first uh, building blocks of the European Health Union, uh, a revamped health security framework, proposals to strengthen the ECDC and the European Medicines Agency, the new pharmaceutical strategy, the beating cancer plan. All these are very important steps which are also complemented by uh, an unprecedented financial allocation to health under the new uh, MFF. But uh, can we do more? Uh, Well, I think there is margin for the EU to do more, to be more ambitious. Uh, The European Pillar of Social Rights Action Plan includes actions uh, related to long-term care and the European health data space, for example. Uh, these will be important initiatives. I think that attention should also be dedicated to prevention, in particular to primary and community care. This is because strong, accessible and effective primary care systems are really the backbone of resident health systems and and the key to making sure that people have access to the right care when they need it and where they need it. Having said that, I think we should not overlook a quite simple fact Um, The European Union can only help protect European citizens from a public health crisis if member states instruct it to. This is uh, the institutional framework the EU is operating in and the same consideration I think applies to social policy at large. So implementing the pillar of social rights and building a stronger social Europe is really an endeavor that will require the full commitment of national actors. The member states are in the driving seat. And why do you think it is important that the EU comes up with
3: health policies and strong social policies more broadly? What's what's the added value there?
4: Well, I think in just one sentence, uh, to live up to citizens' expectations for a Europe that is capable of protecting their health and well-being. I think uh, there is an important lesson to be learned from from this crisis. Uh, Our economies are resilient if the people and the society they live in are resilient. So, recognizing the importance of a strong social Europe has never been so urgent. I think it is crucial to put uh, people's good health and well-being at the uh, core of policymaking uh, and acknowledge the interlink between individual well-being and societal and economic prosperity so quality healthcare access to education decent jobs social protections these are all the foundation of individual and societal well-being and need to be to be regarded and supported accordingly so the eu can play a significant role in this context to make european societies more resilient and fairer uh, it can for example encourage member states to prioritize social investment Mm -hmm. and put people's well-being at the center of the national recovery efforts. In doing so, it would also contribute to the implementation of the principle of the pillar of social rights. I want to
3: turn now to the upcoming social summit and and ask you, what can we expect to come out of it, Uh, especially when 11 member states have already made it clear that They don't really want the EU to start making policies on issues such as uh, wages, pensions, labor conditions. Even in the past, many seemed to be very protective and attached to their own social protection systems. And there seems to be a worry that a common approach through the pillar might set off a regulatory race to the bottom. Is the EU, and in this case the Commission, setting itself up to fail?
0: I don't think it is, but we need to manage expectations mm. so we should not expect this summit to set out a new dream the key objectives and the key challenge will be finding consensus on what has already been promised in 2017 at Gothenburg. Mm. in porto the commission agenda will be to persuade the leaders uh, of the member state to endorse the targets set out in the action plan as well as back the proposals the commission has already come up with now As you said, one job is certainly easier than the other. It will be a challenge to get a vote of confidence from the countries that signed the non-paper, especially on important initiatives such as the European minimum wage, where some countries have been very vocal critics. However, it's important to mention that they do come out in support of the action plan targets and do accept uh, some kind of implementation monitoring. Precisely because of this, the targets receive a boost in importance it seems the member states are still not willing to relinquish control of social and employment policy. And for the implementation of the pillar, national policies, the good functioning of their public services remain the primary tool. That being said, member states must be encouraged to develop sound policies, reevaluate their support for public services, especially when it comes to current investment shortcomings, and embark on ambitious reforms to improve their labor market and the public services resilience and quality. In this context, the recovery and resilience national plans are very important. Now and for the future, a key objective of the commission should be to socialize the European semester so that member states are encouraged to invest and embark on comprehensive reforms. Uh, We should not forget, however, that currently social recommendations are the ones that are not implemented at the member state level. They are mainly ignored. So reforms should uh, head in that direction. And if we expect the commission to get a concrete commitment from member states, I think this will be a success. But we should not expect the summit to come up with new social rights. We should not expect it to get broad uh, support on all commission policies.
3: Laura, what do you think? Is there anything concrete the EU uh, can achieve uh, in the field of social policy?
1: Uh, as Mihai says, unless there's significant redistribution of powers on social policymaking in the immediate future, which is indeed highly unlikely, the Commission can only work with the powers that it currently has at its disposal. But that's not to say that they should be underestimated. Uh, Monitoring of progress, you know, pointing out those member states that are performing well or badly in comparison to others should not be disregarded. It really can spur action at national level. Policy guidance, exchange of best practices all helps towards upwards convergence. And now, uh, importantly, added to the system of monitoring, coordination, cooperation that, as Mihai mentioned, primarily took place within the structure of the European semester. We can now add the carrot, if you like, of funding. So while all the aforementioned policy tools still apply, the Commission now has the key to large amounts of funding uh, to disperse in support of the reforms that they wish to see happen in member states. The recovery resilience facility requires member states to submit national recovery resilience plans. And these plans must incorporate previously issued recommendations made by the Commission, which could be on topics ranging from Inclusion of migrants, investment in childcare or investment in long-term care, promoting women's participation in the labour market and so on. And unless member states commit to these reforms and investments, the Commission now have the right to refuse funding. Before the Recovery and Resilience Facility, as Mihai said, the country's specific recommendations on social policy were the least implemented of all policy recommendations. So it will be very interesting now to see if the financial carrot that's being offered might
3: actually change this. Uh, Mihai and Laura, you already mentioned the importance of of the targets um, in the action plan, and I would like to zoom in on one of them, um, and on one of the more prominent uh, targets, to have at least 78% of the population between 20 to 64 employed by 2030. Now, Laura, you already uh, mentioned this as well. Um, it means a lot more women will have to enter the labor market in the next nine years. At the moment, finding a job is still tougher for women than it is for men, and they also tend to work in low quality jobs in vulnerable conditions. That was, or that became very apparent uh, during the pandemic, and COVID 19 has only made matters worse. Uh, as part of the previously mentioned target, the action plan sets out to have the gender employment gap compared to 2019. Danielle, can you tell us uh, what the role is of the EU and the member states, respectively, in reaching that target?
5: Yes, um, as you mentioned, um, Rebecca, the, in order to reach that, I find, 78% target, more women will need to be included in the labour market. But in order to bring more women into the labour market and to reduce that gender employment gap, attention needs to be given to the factors which keep women outside of the labour market. And of course, one of the predominant factors that contribute to that gender employment gap is women's role when it comes to unpaid care. Um, In the EU, um, 7.7 million women remain outside of the labour market due to their care responsibilities. And this is compared to just 450,000 men. So evidently, this is a key factor and key area that needs um, action. As a very first step, the Work-Life Balance Directive needs to be implemented across um, member states. And action in this area is probably more important now than ever before, given the impact of the pandemic. And we've seen that women have had to take on greater care responsibilities due to school closures and working from home mandates. Um, And this has implications for women's ability to um, perform in in the labour market. And we've seen women reducing their working hours or um, in some cases, indeed, um, leaving employment altogether. And this not only has implications for here and now, but it also has longer term implications in terms of pensions and social protection. And of course, when we're talking about care, we're not just talking about uh, child care, but also care of the elderly. Um, and Laura mentioned long term care. And this is a very important um, area, particularly given it our ageing population. So in the action plan, um, the Commission has actioned to have a long term initiative proposed by 2022. Um, and this is very um, important, um, as I've mentioned, given the uh, ageing population. And it's important, particularly for women's inclusion in the labour market, as if we don't have formal measures in place to deal with long term care, then there is a real threat that those who are already outside of the labour market will not um, enter the labour market. And in turn, that larger numbers of women will leave the labour market as well in order to perform non-paid care roles. And another key um, issue is the gender pay gap. At the end of March, the Commission put forward its initiative on pay transparency, which of course is a welcome um, step in order to achieve pay parity. However, alone, it will not rid the employment market of uh, inequalities when it comes to pay. Um, Indeed, because women dominate some of the low paid and indeed often undervalued sectors in our society, attention needs to be given to these sectors in terms of pay inequalities and decent living wages need to be um, afforded. The gender pay gap, of course, contributes to the gender employment gap. If you have a a couple, a man and woman, and one of them will have to leave employment in order to look after an an elderly relative or a child, then the person who's earning more is more likely to remain in the labour market. Mm. And at the moment, unfortunately, that tends to be the man. So action is needed in this area in order to ensure that women, one, remain in the labour market and also to encourage more women to participate um, in the labour market as well.
3: So, Laura, if we continue uh, with this particular objective, this particular um, example, is there any link being made between um, social policies and the new recovery and resilience facility? Or should there be?
1: Um, Yeah, just to say that indeed with the the way that the recovery is handled now, uh, primarily at EU level through the recovery and resilience facility, There needs to be a focus in that on on making gender equality a key point. There is a real risk due to the emphasis on the the green and digital transitions within the recovery. that because STEM subjects, you know, science, technology, engineering, math, they're already, already typically male dominated subjects and extra funding in those sectors can potentially make an already bad situation much worse with jobs being created taken up by men typically and women increasingly locked out of the more lucrative and in-demand trade. And furthermore, it is perhaps also high time that it's recognised in Brussels and in member states that investing in care services also makes good financial sense. Uh, For instance, there's research that's been done in the UK by the Women's Budget Group, which calculated that an investment of 2% of GDP in care services in comparison to making that same invest investment in construction projects, it will create double the number of jobs in total. So this 2% of GDP invested in care would create around 1.5 million jobs compared to 750,000 if the same investment was made in construction. And while it will create almost as many jobs for men as that same investment in construction, it would create up to four times as many jobs for women. So it would make a huge step towards reducing uh, the gender employment gap and considering the massive amounts of money being allocated in the recovery resilience plans at the moment, recognizing these numbers before we spend everything on fiber optic cables, wind turbines, solar panels might be a good
3: idea. What I'm hearing here actually is that social investment is, is really crucial and that is really the area in which the EU can can have a an actual added value in terms of social policies in the EU.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Social investment has a massive role to play, and it has been um, a big part as to why our healthcare services, our long-term care services, and many others, have been uh, so hard hit by the pandemic, because over the last decade, since the financial crisis in 2008, social investment levels have plummeted. And it is really... Uh, created holes in our social protection systems. It's uh, made, meant that we're already working on a threadbare system in, in some sectors. And so it's absolutely vital that now in the recovery, social investment really
3: gets a prominent role uh, in, in how the money is allocated. So Eileen, I'm, I'm going to bring you in now to to tie everything together. Um, Laura already made references to um, the recovery, to the European Green Deal, Um, how does a stronger social Europe fit into the bigger picture? What are some of the wider implications if the EU fails um, to really set a social agenda uh, and follow through on it? And how does social Europe connect to the other major objectives the EU has set out for itself, recovering from COVID and uh, particularly the green and digital transitions?
2: Uh, Thanks very much, uh, Rebecca, and I think, you know, the the transformation and the modernisation of of Europe's economy that is required, you know, to get to the net zero emissions, it will see many jobs change and some will disappear. And we're seeing this already in relation to the future of work, where a key challenge is the societal impact of massive changes in the workplace from technological advances in automation, digitalisation and artificial intelligence. So we also need to ensure that people who are transitioning out of the old fossil fuel industries, as well as our young people or women, social excluded, that they have the skills and the training so that they're able to take up the jobs in the new green and digital industries. But people, you know, they must be at the centre of this transformation. You know, ensuring a just transition to a net zero economy that also protects our most vulnerable is absolutely fundamental, because if the transition to a sustainable and resilient future is not well managed in a socially just and fair way that leaves no one behind. There is real potential for stranded communities and workers with the risk of exacerbating social exclusion of the poorest and most vulnerable, weakening societal cohesion and leading to massive inequalities. And this could manifest itself in political breakdown, feeding populism and potentially a breakdown of consensus and damage support for the EU. So we need a more comprehensive and, and ambitious, you know, implementation of the pillar and the action plan to enable it to serve, if you like, as, a, as the building blocks of a new EU social contract with all of Europe's citizens. And that could help to both ensure, you know, societal and territorial cohesion with intergenerational solidarity and fairness and address the growing inequalities that have exposed, you know, so many EU citizens to the worst economic and social impacts of COVID-19. And I think you know by leaving no one behind, social inclusiveness must become the foundational element in the EU's economic and social transformation.
3: A big thank you to Eileen, Laura, Simona, Mihai and Danielle. We here at the EPC will continue to closely follow the EU social agenda and the implementation of the European Pillar of Social Rights. If you're interested to learn more about our work on EU social policies, go to epc.eu or watch our spaces on Twitter at epc underscore eu or on LinkedIn, or subscribe to this podcast, which you can find now on SoundCloud, Spotify, and on our website. Tune in next time. Until then, over and out.